Hello everyone and welcome to Radio, a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. Um, I'm your host Ross Drakes and I'm sitting here today with David Alexander, whose official title on his business card is the guy in charge of keeping people happy and he is working or he is one of the founders of the Sheer Music Publishing Company. That's right, yeah. Welcome David. Thanks very much. Um, I think just for everyone's thing, let's kick off with give us your elevator pitch. So I bring administrative services to the administratively challenged songwriters. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Essentially, I represent these awesome group of people who are tasked with getting their emotional uh, journey out via songs. And what normally happens as a consequence is that they're pretty good at telling a story via their medium, but they're pretty bad at doing other stuff, like particularly paperwork. And where we've gone in the music industry, particularly now in the digital age, is we've moved to a place where information and metadata, as it feeds into this whole kind of big data equation, is essential in order to get paid. So before, you could print a bunch of stuff. So you print some cassettes or some CDs and you sell them. So it doesn't matter what information there is about it. You have stock and you sell it and it's gone. Now, of course, everything's going on to a digital portal, um, either via the internet or via a mobile service provider. And unless that information is correct, the money doesn't flow. And there's hundreds of millions of micropayments. So a, a hit song in today's modern age can attract 6 billion unique transactions. Wow. So what we do is we look after all this information on behalf of our songwriters. We present it to the people who are the gatekeepers uh, in charge of collecting the money and paying it out to, to the re required people. So when you uh, take your Apple subscription, Apple Music, and you're paying your 60 bucks a month and you're listening to a 1,000 tracks, they're not splitting the 60 bucks by the 1,000 tracks. They're literally splitting up all the 60 bucks by all the tracks that are streamed um, from the store, so from the South African store. So it becomes a, a huge um, job to make sure that each one of those, and they're paying a record label and they're paying a number of songwriters on each track, so to make sure that little fraction of a cent arrives in the right account because actually unless you get like a whole bunch of fractions of a cent, you don't see a cent. Yeah. So my new software, royalty software program now has uh, five decimal places after the zero. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is yeah. that how small like kind of payments are breaking down into and like that, fractions of fractions of fractions? Exactly. So when I say, you know, we, we bring administrative services, in the old days, it used to be much more around traditional contract management and um, making sure that the, the record labels knew who the songwriters were on the songs because essentially they're two different rights. The record label looks after the artist, that's the performer. I look after the songwriter, that's the person who wrote either the melody, so those are the um, staff notation that you would see if you bought some sheet music, or the lyrics, which is the poetry or the rapping or whatever it is. And these two things get combined into a song. And um, as I was saying to you earlier, you're getting the average number of songwriters on a hit song these days being 6.27 songwriters. So collaboration is producing better connection 
or more connection with the audience out there. So that's interesting. You're saying that on like one track, so like a hit track that's playing on the radio, there's an average of 6.27 people who've been behind writing the lyrics and the music of that track and then there's still the artist or the band that performs that track um, and actually turns it into music. Exactly. That's astounding. Yeah. And is this, I mean, is this a number that's kind of increasing over, you know, like do you think it's increasing over time? Has it always been that average or, you know, have you just quantified it now in this era of data as you, as you say? I don't know. That's interesting. I, I think it is increasing. I think the idea of collaboration as a way of expressing difference in ideas or getting to, to improve on, on work around songs is, it's always kind of been like a Nashville thing. So everybody understood like in country music, there was this Nashville community that wrote the songs and then there were country music artists who performed them. So you'd be, you're the one performer, but there'd be a team of star artists. So like Sufjan Stevens is the one doing the singing and there's a whole team of people creating music for him. Exactly. But I think now, particularly through the success of things like hip hop, where you know, you've got the crew in the room and it's everything from the guy driving the, the, the levels, you know, so that's the engineer, to the producer. So the producer used to be creative oversight, but now might be breaking down um, music, might actually be playing samples, might be playing keys and pads themselves. And then, of course, the, the songwriters, and then, you know, somebody walks into the room, so like, hey, you're working in a, in a studio and Casper walks in and he drops a couple of words in like, hey, what about that lyric or that? And suddenly he's a three or 5% shareholder on the track and he departs and somebody else is walking. You know, the studios are a place where social um, activity happens and hopefully I think it's in the sake of the improvement of the music. Now, I mean, just sitting as an outsider to this world of music, it seems interesting that you've jumped into this world of admin off the back of a seemingly very interesting or very rock and roll kind of industry. So there's like music's got this kind of allure to it and there's lots of these metaphors that come to life when you think about the life of a musician or living that rock and roll lifestyle. Like how did you end up how did you end up kind of running the back office in of this kind of thing? Were you did you come in wanting to be a music artist or, or I mean how did you end up in this this industry? So I landed up two ways. One, I, I would have loved to be meatloaf. So another <laughs> life, like, uh, you know, if I could sing like that, dude, uh, I'd be really happy. So yes, I'm a frustrated musician, but like the first band that I played for said, no, no, you, you, you should be our manager. So I kind of took the hint and, and did that. But um, I worked in band management, record label side. I made uh, music videos. And the, the real impact of that, other than the sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle, was the fact that the uh, income is not certain. So you would invest in a number of projects, but generally like big companies would have an 80-20 an rule. So 20% of their products are going to make 80% of their income. Like if you're a small company, you can only invest in two or three products and none of those are success successful. It's very difficult to make a living. So definitely a lot of small record labels lose money. So I was, I was in that boat, uh, landed up um, having to settle a debt to my partner's father that I landed up paying for, for, for many years. And the other consequence was kind of the lifestyle. So while I was young and single, very attractive, 
even while I was there, and I was just married, um, you know, there, <laughs> there were certain things that getting out and traveling and being away was pretty cool. But um, as I, I kind of matured into my relationship and then, of course, had kids, I wanted something that was much more certain and nine to five in hours and nature. But I knew a lot about the business. I had already acquired rights in the publishing space. I knew that there was certainty in revenue and, and certainly that if I looked at how the world was changing with the introduction of Napster and um, mp3.com and, you Lime know, all of those. And exactly, all of those sites. It's like to be in the record business seemed like a mic's game. It's like, okay, so what can I do? I, I know a lot about this business. The actual little business that I'm in doesn't seem like it's got a future. Um but can I kind of do a shift? And that's what I did. Um, so we had a couple of businesses. So we had the record label, which was the main earner, the film and TV production business, and then the publishing business. And I just kind of exited the others and focused just on the music publishing. My partner and I uh, parted ways, and uh, I took on new partners at the time and uh, never looked back. Um, but... Literally, since my son was born, the last 10 years, the idea of changing from a lifestyle business to a business, an annuity business, something that I could be proud to tell my son about what I do every day, as opposed to him thinking I'm going out to have fun. And, you know, that, that might have been a, a tough sell with my wife. It would have been an impossible sell with my kids. Yeah. Like, as it is, they really... Um, don't like the amount of time I spend away from them and they don't really understand that it's, you know, in the service of the greater good. The school fees aren't going to pay themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I, I wonder about this, uh, you know, like the, the trade-off. But, yeah. but it is justifiable in the sense that I'm building a business that I'm very proud of, that I think um, we represent South African culture. So up to a point in time, Gallo Record Company and Gallo Publishing were, were the caretakers of South African music culture. But since the, the mid-90s, the, the sheer brand has been the one associated with it. And, and literally, the, the last record label was sold uh, in 2014, and I'm the only sheer brand left. And we still have, you know, the most amazing copyrights from Mendoza to Miriam Makeba to Zahara, Casper Nyoivest, uh, Ricky Rick Lira, um, so if you kind of think about who's definitive of South African music stuff that's been listened to at the moment, Shear would be the appropriate company. I think you mentioned a, a stat to me earlier when we were chatting. You said you 17% of the market or 20% of the market? Yeah. So depending on, on, on what royalty stream you're looking at, we're about 17% market share. And is that is the majority of that made up of, of local, you know, like when you say you represent it, like... I'm sure the other guys in the market are the big guys, your Warner Brothers and your Sony's representing Kanye West and, and friends. Exactly. So we are um, third, if you count, Sony EMI um, as, as one company. They're going through a merger at the moment and uh, they do need permission from the Competition Commission, but I, I imagine that's kind of going to go through. So that puts them as one company and they uh, nearly a third of the market. And then Universal is the big one that comes after that, and then there's us. So us, Gallo, and uh, David Gresham make up the, the top five by market share. And no, it's not only South African. Uh, we represent some of the big 
international independent companies. So uh, a major would be defined as a company that is uh, listed in one territory but has multiple offices uh, around the world, including here in South Africa, and that office might run the whole of the continent. Didn't used to before, but uh, these days they're starting to think about Africa. And in fact, some of them are now starting to open up offices in Nigeria and in uh, Kenya. We work with uh, independent companies like ourselves who are only located in the country that they are located in. But we have a reciprocal relationship with them. So we will represent Mushroom Music from Australia, their Kylie Minogue's publisher for Africa, and they represent us in Australia. Or we represent uh, Bucks Music from uh, the UK that uh, has the producers who work with uh, Ed Sheeran, uh, amongst others, and um, they represent us there. But our biggest indie, indie client is a company called Cobalt, and they're kind of uh, a game changer in the publishing industry because they really are a tech company that's looking to acquire rights, and they're driving down the, the price of, of deals. So generally, um, in the record business, where you have uh, um, record labels investing a, a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of rands or dollars, in making masters that are going to land up on the radio. The record company takes 80% of the money and pays the artist 20%. In my industry, because the capital investment is uh, a lot lower and the barriers to entry are a lot lower, we're taking you know, 20 to 30% and paying the, the 80 to 70% out to, to the songwriter, to the creators. And Cobalt's kind of um, driving that margin down because they've uh, got big tech um, on a global basis and they are distributing straight into all the CMOs, the collecting societies. So these gatekeepers that I was talking about where all those Apple Music royalties kind of go through. And um, instead of having to have a local office like I have with 20 people all having to punch uh, numbers and make sure you're matching each of those streams to the right song, They've got Fuzzy Logic and um, maybe some programmers in Thailand uh, making sure that it all happens. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I think that's an interesting segue. You know, we're busy working on a, a rebrand project for a client of ours who's in the, um, the video space, and one of their big clients is, is one of the big channels here. And obviously, that industry is busy being upended by people like Netflix. And I think the music industry is slightly ahead of the, the video industry in terms of the kind of upheaval. Can you talk a little bit about how your business has reacted to the advent of streaming and the kind of changing of this, like I think digital has, has changed music completely. I mean, you've already touched a little bit on it about how it used to be punting CDs. Like how, how are people making money in the industry and how's your business kind of adapted to the the change? So, I mean, it's an interesting space to be in. The music industry has always been the mineshaft canary for all the creative industries because the ability to, to size in, uh, the file that you're able to send, so the ability to downscale that music file, that WAV file down to an MP3 and then to send it over the net and now, of course, to stream it. It's just, it's allowed technology to play such a big role in distribution of music, whereas... Uh, it's taken video a lot longer because of the much bigger files that they've had to deal with. So you, you know, have had challenges around uh, access, around bandwidth, around cost of, of data. And in the much of the developed world where Netflix and that are taking hold, those problems have been solved. 
So Africa's interesting. Um, I mean, that's my backyard, and we still have electricity problems. Never mind, you know, all the same problems as, in, internet. as access. You know, yeah. people who who have access to the internet at work and aren't allowed to do music at work. You know, so they can't do- download it, so they're limited to their phone and you know what kind of connection that they have. So it has put us a lot further behind the the technological curve which allows me to kind of look here at what's happening in the first world and see what they're doing to solve those problems, decide what we're going to cherry pick as our solutions and then kind of test and implement them here. So one of the best things that we ever did was buy a a big royalty system. So about 14 years ago, we bought a, a system that is now allowing us to process all of these streaming files. Um, and what that does is gives us a USP. So a small publisher, someone who's got 10 songs can manage their own catalog. But once you go to a thousand songs and you're now getting a streaming report that you know is probably as high as a two or three story building, they don't have the capacity internally to process that. So they outsource it to someone like me. So we do administrative backend again for them. So we land up working with a bunch of cool South African companies um, and helping them link their businesses into this whole digital age. Um, but what it has done is, is, is a couple of things. So, so first of all, it's decreased the value to the user. So for the person who goes, used to go to the store and spend 150 bucks on a CD, the fact that they're now spending 60 rand a month or 80 rand for the whole family and they can listen to whatever they want, whenever they want, their perceived value about what that is is very low. And that's created a disconnect. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think they've it, destroyed it, it, the value, the, I, the perceived value? I think they have. And, and even the size of it. Like if, if you just think how big a, a record was, like and you came home and you opened it up and would flap out into oh, two like parts. the notes and the, exactly. the sleeve that pulled out. And then it went down to this the... little box that was a CD yeah. and then, you know, to, and now phew, you can't even see it. Yeah. So, so emotionally and physically, the value of music has really sort of decreased of recorded music. What hasn't decreased is the value of a one-to-one experience. So live music is definitely on the increase. So the value of going to a show and seeing a live artist perform, people are paying much more for that experience now yeah. because that is such a limited kind of experience and the value is still perceived. You get dressed up, you get your friends together, you go. Yeah, it's like an experience. It's an experience. And, and so for, for the music industry generally, a lot of value has shifted from recorded music to, to live music. From my perspective, we were always cut into advertising revenue. So from publishing, publishing always takes a share of ad revenue on radio and television. And that's generally kind of been buoyant over the last uh, 20 years in, in South Africa. It's kind of plateauing now. So radio is still strong. So radio generally is, is strong, but I think for us, the growth in radio is going to be on the continent because uh, advertising there is coming off a really low base, but the audience is really big, and I think that that's going to develop really fast. So I'm kind of excited about our opportunity to tax that. The problem is there the collecting societies whose job has been to um, collect money for, for the songwriters used to collect money from hotels and bars because uh, 
historically that's where the international societies got their money. Yeah. So like an African band would get all dressed up in black tie and go and perform international jazz standards. So, you know, hotel guests would um, dance, you know, cheek to cheek. And uh, GEMA, that's the, the German society, or SASEM in France, or PRS in UK would want to make sure that they got their share of the, the hotel background music. But as uh, radio has expanded on the continent, um, a lot of that is owned by the government. So you've got copyright legislation, which is good because it um, provides for payment of royalties according to advertising. But you've got the same people who are battling for money, enough tax money, trying to decide whether they should take some of their own, the money out of their own pocket um, and pay it back to the, the songwriters. And instead they're saying, well, let's hire you and we'll do a show and then yeah. you'll promote us for our election campaign coming up. So the whole live thing in Africa around elections is also kind of a, um, where politics and music have, have, have overlapped. Politicians use the musicians to access the, the marketplace and then they go and forget so about it. So you could win a, a presidential election just by bringing out Kanye West and that's like a guaranteed vote or do you think you'll do better with a, a local artist? So, so here they would definitely do better with local artists. Um, I mean, look at what happened in Uganda with Bobby Wine. I mean, like they're literally, like people were in the streets protesting. So, uh, you know, you've got um, in Senegal, you know, got Minister of Arts and Culture, musicians. You've got in Brazil, Gilberto Gil. So, so I think that there is a... Um, a connection between people and the artists and allowing them to kind of move and, and be in politics. Not that that was where we were going with that, that topic, but definitely I think politicians here in South Africa use the artists to create a political platform and then they kind of forget about them for a while. But what they do while they're using them is they put on these huge free concerts and that, that takes some value out of the later attempts to try and then have a concert and charge people okay, at the door. Concerts. So, look, Africa's always an interesting place to be. I mean, Julius Caesar said it, you know, ex Africa, sempre aliquid novi. So we've always known that, like, um, Africa's a very dynamic place. But because of the way the technology lags the global pace of change, we often get an opportunity here, and, and certainly me as an entrepreneur, to look and reflect on what they're doing and how they're handling change over there and implement stuff here that I think is going to work. And I think that's allowed me to build a business. I mean, that and good people. Uh, my management team literally have been with me since the beginning. So my right-hand man, the, the full 21 years that we've been in business, uh, the rest of my management team from 10 to 17 years. And, and that kind of certainty of who you're dealing with means that I'm no longer just the sole brand ambassador. Mm -hmm. So for many companies, it's the, the CEO is the person who's seen as being out there and driving that company's vision and purpose, whereas I'm one of six who, who are doing it and are the same consistent people who are speaking from the same um, message sheet. Twice. And uh, that has allowed us yeah, to, to kind of grow and compete as well, whereas these international companies that come in and do business here, they hire somebody. And then when they get too expensive, they fire them and they hire a younger guy. There's a different face all the time. Completely. So. Um, I like that thought. I just want to jump back because you said something interesting about 
um, how music is being devalued. And I just want to throw something out there. Like, I hated CDs. Like, I used to buy a lot of records and I hate CDs. Like, not that I hate CDs, I hate the medium of the CD. Like, it's always, it's your favorite song at your favorite moment that gets scratched, always. Like, it's guaranteed if you like one track on a 15-track album, that's the one that's going to get scratched. So, as soon as MP3s kind of came along, I jumped Almost immediately, I can actually remember pitching my dad on how the iPod was a business, like a tool for school, and I could carry my files around with me. It was actually just so that I could have MP3s. So obviously, my first step was to pirate MP3s because you couldn't really buy them anywhere. Or it was either pirating them or ripping CDs and turning them into MP3s. And now for the first time ever, I'm actually a Spotify subscriber so it's, it's become convenient enough for me. It's easier for me to just pay my 60 bucks a month or 80 bucks. I don't even know what it costs. It's like 100 bucks a month for the music than it is for me to bother going onto those piracy sites and finding the pirated thing and downloading it and dealing with all the spam. So I've actually, I, like I fell out of the music buying industry and now I've kind of looped back into it again. I mean, how much of that do you think is kind of going down? So, so if we remember the, the CD model, the records company would sell a CD to the store who would mark it up 100% and sell it to the customer. And everybody thought, geez, it's expensive that I'm paying 150 rand. I'm glad the artist is getting their royalties. Yeah. But then 75 rand goes to the company and as I explained, 20% of that is going to the artist. Um, so so the, the, the economies uh, around that were quite different to the, the economy um, around the, the digital music industry at the moment. But what we are seeing is that, as you're saying, the ease of access is now starting to turn the tide of people who were choosing to uh, be copyright infringers and are now tending to follow copyrighted and pay for premium access because they see a, a value in that. So it's, it's probably not the majority of the youth who are still use YouTube stream rippers. Yes which, you know, I will admit it. I was a member of Street Beat. I used to take those records home and my TDK90 and I knew you could fit one on one side and one on the other yeah. side. But, you know, the, the idea was always that as you became more economically active, you would then migrate to somebody who then started to go into the store and would, would buy the, the real deal. But for a while, I think because of MP3s and because of um, whether it's Pirate Bay or um, Kazar or, or any of those, the older people, so not just the, the youth, were finding it easier and to go and uh, rip off these albums, uh, download them off the net. Now, of course, that's not the case. Mm. So now the economies are, we're seeing uh, much more subscribers. And in fact, interestingly enough, here in South Africa, Apple Music has now almost completely cannibalized the iTunes store. So, so like uh, no one's buying track by track anymore. Correct. So now we're seeing Africa starting to buy, download iTunes track by track um, because they might have access for at one place for a while, but they don't have continuous data, so they don't want to be in the streaming model. But anywhere that's got easy access to streaming, good broadband, data prices are, are okay, we're seeing streaming model being the thing to, to change the face of the music industry. It has had another consequence, 
So other than just what is it's doing in terms of bringing on paid subscribers, which is great, which means that the music industry has hit the bottom of, of its curve and is now starting to turn again and we're hoping for that exponential curve, but it's certainly not up to where it was um, here in 2008 and internationally in 2003. It's, it's a little ways off, off of there, but it's definitely climbing. Um, but what it is doing is, sorry, I forgot where my train of thought was, was, <laughs> was, was going on that, but um, I, I, I think, oh, yes. So, so what it is doing is, is it's making that 80-20 model no longer valid. Uh, do you think it's actually becoming the other way around? No. So, so, so in your CD business, 20% of your products doing 80% of your revenue. I mean, that's kind of like a business rule that you learn when you go and do your MBA, right? Yeah. So when the internet came in, digital music changed it to a 90-10 model. So what happened is because you had far fewer opportunities to go and buy, so like there's only a couple of stores, whatever is in the, the shop front of that store depends how far you're going to go and dig. Whereas if you're going in the old days to CD Warehouse, I mean, you could spend like three, four hours, you could uh, have a good time and a coffee, chat to somebody who's knowledgeable and they take you around, you land up walking out with, you know, 1500 bucks worth of music. Now it's like you go in and get out. Mobile has made a 95-5 proposition. So 5% of our products are doing 95% of our turnover. Because wow. if you're not on the landing page for MTN Music or Dukes or, or any of these services, it's so hard for the consumer to find the music. They're going, ah, it's just too much effort. Like, oh, okay, so everybody is listening to that. I might as well listen to that. I mean, so, so, so that's the one consequence in terms of, of business. So a lot of people are then fallen off, off the, the curve. So you used to have, yeah, some really high-earning artists, but you would have like, you know, a standard uh, isosceles triangle. And all the way down the sides, you would have people at various levels. That literally looks like a needle at the moment. So you've got your Taylor Swifts and Kanye West and stuff and at the Drake. top. And then, and then it falls right down to literally the bottom where people are becoming non-professional. So they can't make a living from their music. So they are having to do something else like teach or, um, you know, maybe a proper day job. The other consequence, of course, is that because music is being reported by sales, what used to happen is you used to have a, a, a list or a top 10 for every different genre. But now because there's only like Apple Music, so Apple Music's genre neutral, like who's the Apple Music top 10? It's really like it's the popular music top yeah. 10. And that's on Apple and Spotify and all of these similar services. So there, there's this concentration of what is popular um, because of these services. And that's going out globally. And do you think these services get to set the, the, the tempo or to get to set what is popular? Or do you think it's users that are picking that? So a lot of people will say that it really is about algorithms and they're trying to be as neutral as possible. But actually, we've heard about Spotify gaming the system mm. and putting stuff onto their playlists. You can buy likes and, you know, so I'm, I'm not sure, you know, technology isn't my area of expertise, but I do notice as a, as a user and somebody in, in the industry how things have changed a little. I think the... The ability for the diverse to find their market 
has really lost ground because of uh, the services that are are now being um, adopted far more rapidly. I think over time, once we have um, a much more diverse marketplace online, so if you can imagine at some point all of Africa, like 1.1 billion people, all having electricity and bandwidth and data and being able to yeah, choose their like own music. Four billion people by that point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> four billion Africans all then, online. Then there will be an, an ability to influence from a different perspective. But now the kind of people who are um, have a credit card and it's Europeans uh, and Americans, you know. So it's it's people you know who who look and sound like you, and therefore they reinforce that stereotype of what you should be listening to. So it's a little bit harder, I think, to, to find the interesting and diverse. And that was how we built our company. We built our company in jazz. Uh, nobody else was playing in that space in South African jazz in, in, in the 90s. But because of the deregulation of the airwaves and because of P4 and Kai FM and radio stations that were programming jazz, it gave us an opportunity to actually like sort of play in the space. And survive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I find it very interesting. You said something earlier about kind of the music industry being the mind canary. Um, and I think there's a few interesting things here that people can kind of take from this. I think one of them is it feels like the way the music business was set up from uh, uh, the value creators versus who's getting paid was quite dishonest or quite unbalanced. So the people actually creating the music were not the ones getting most of the, the kind of revenue that, that was all happening with distributors and managers and, and kind of things. And it feels like the digital age hasn't necessarily righted that, but it's definitely like small, like made that, that kind of discrepancy a little bit smaller. So, so, Every indie artist has the tools to access the marketplace. The thing is that they don't have the concentration. And that concentration allows the multinationals to really kind of carry on doing business the way they always did. So they will go to a, a radio playlist committee and they will say, you can have the latest single by our famous artist, but you need to take the next two singles by our new releases and program them too. Otherwise, we're going to embargo this from your radio station. So they get to to control the narrative in in a in a very coercive way. So yes, there is um, a story about an indie artist who can go online, put their things, their their songs onto CD Baby or TuneCore, and access this global music market. But unless you're on radio. You're not being listened to to the point where somebody is then going to stream you or download you. So whoever controls those points of access is at the moment still exerting an influence on the market. And that's still that power lies with these global multinationals. And do you think that's going to be the next big shift in the industry? I mean, I hope so. I, I think that um, certainly the, the, the story is out there and has been for long enough that this is an unacceptable way of behaving. But actually what we're seeing is this concentration getting bigger and bigger. They've gobbled up smaller companies to the point where where I came into the industry, there were five multinationals and now they're three. You know, so and I mean yes, gobbled each other up. They've gobbled each other up. Yeah. So so there are a couple of emerging independents who maybe are going to be the new multinationals, but they're not quite at that level yet. And do you think things like Tidal and, you know, kind of independent, for want of a better term, kind of streaming services have the ability to kind of compete with people like Spotify and Apple? 
I think over time, there, there will be only a couple of services um, simply because it's a, a scale game. So you look at Spotify still losing money after all this time and after the scale. Apple Music is the only one making money, but they're... Uh, they have a much bigger ecosystem that's feeling that same Precisely, same thing. exactly. They're not relying on the music only. So, and, and the music industry really has allowed other companies to always be these gatekeepers. So whether it was the, the stores or now the digital stores, the, the music industry through not allowing people to make digital copies of their own music, like actually putting a, a weak bit into those CDs so that uh, when you copied it, uh, it wouldn't play. Mm. Like they destroyed the, their connection or their likelihood of connection with, with the fan. So the record labels are kind of um, persona non grata as far as the consumer is concerned. They're only interested in, in the artists that they want to support. Well, I suppose, I mean, that's such an interesting thing that you, like my wife is a very, very honest person, but she has no problem copying MP3s off the internet. So that like falls into this gray area. And I think it's so interesting that the, the, the big bad music labels have kind of damaged their, their relationship with the consumer so much that people who wouldn't steal, you know, like money off a table will steal an MP3 quite happily and not feel kind of guilty about it because of this perception of these, these things. That's such a interesting thought in my head. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think, do you think we, we can make it through this into a space where the artist is direct, has direct access to the, to the market? Or do you think that's just an impossible? So, so blockchain seems to be a possible way to solve this. So once you have a reliable way to verify who should get paid and that the micropayments can avoid all of the middlemen, and I would be one of those middlemen that could be avoided. So where I'm going to go and having to get business in this, in this future is a lot of that administrative revenue will disappear. But blockchain is a way for the fan to directly pay the artist without all the intermediaries. So Imogen Heap um, started it actually like with a company out of South Africa. Interestingly, a guy from Cape Town. Um, trying to think of what the, the name is, but you can pay via Ethereum. And, okay, we'll um, find the link and share it in yeah, the show notes. It's, it's very cool because now like a couple of people are, are doing that and they're getting paid in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, you know, even though, you know, they, they're experimenting with that. Those are the experiments that will hopefully at some point prove to be a, a business case that will allow this ecosystem of artist-driven business to flourish and thrive. I suppose there are a few examples where this, I mean, what's her name? Amanda fucking Palmer is so good at, at connecting directly with fans, delivering value directly to fans and actually getting like reward or cash directly back out of fans. I think she's one of the ones, I think Trent Reznor's also done a few experiments where he's released his own, his own album, both digitally and physically, and you could only buy it directly from Trent Reznor. But I suppose both of those artists did use the multinationals the, to build their brand and then until they could step out and actually be like, okay, I'm not going to use you anymore. Yeah. And I'm, I feel my brand is bigger than yours. I think Amanda Palmer's just got a great husband and like maybe it's a team that really kind of works too. 
help her selling her product and herself. That's so are you moving into this blockchain thing? Are you exploring this at all? Are you? I'm kind of keeping an eye on it, but I'm very aware that it's unlikely that um, a South African tech solution is going to be something that is globally adopted. And there are a number of different blockchain options, and ultimately it's going to be about which one has the advantage to scale. So, you know, it's in the same thing as the, the streaming wars, Pandora, Spotify, and uh, Apple Music. There can be only one. Um, so do I want to be one of the almost rands? Uh, I'm not sure. No, I, I like the music business. I, I mean, I'm passionate about the people that I represent. I want to make sure that they get paid, um, paid fairly. And uh, I think it's a really cool business to be in. I think tech is an interesting business and the multiples, sure, are probably a lot higher than mine. But um, for, for me to kind of do a pivot at this point, kind of like what Cobalt did, um, that's, that's maybe not the play I'm going to make. I mean, I think that's uh, it's quite an interesting note to, to end all of this on. I've got two questions for you just to kind of answer for the audience. I think the first one is, what, do you, what lesson do you think kind of entrepreneurs listening to this can take from the music business and pull into whatever the industry they are in to sort of either avoid what's happened here or to kind of leverage some of the, the things that have happened here? Well, I think South African and African entrepreneurs have always been aware of the fact that we have a time lag between what's happening that we read in the media in the rest of the world and what is going to take effect on the continent. So I think it's always given us an ability to be ahead of our game on the continent by going and, and seeing and cherry picking. And, 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 and maybe that's the thing that I, I, I've done quite successfully. And I think that any, any one of our EO members can do, which is, you know, not just choose from one model. We can pick from a number and from a number of different suppliers and kind of combine that and make something that is African or appears African to the Africans. But actually it's a, a, a combination, like a, a combo of all the best practice and, and, and use that to win. Um, the other thing is, you know, what everybody's talking about, like disruption is going to come to your industry. The question is how aware of are you about what can disrupt your industry? Mm. Are you thinking that the thing you're reading about is going to disrupt your industry? I doubt it. It's the thing you're not even thinking about. It's going to come from completely from the side and make a change. I mean, that iPod, that, Thing that you bought that completely disrupted our industry because if it wasn't the ability to put all these things in one place and walk around with them the idea of ripping them and putting them on your pc at home never you know never, never would have worked exactly i love that and as a final thing and i know it's going to be a very difficult um question to answer but but what piece of music would you recommend people go and listen to to have an amazing experience that's a, a very difficult one. Um, actually, um, one of my clients, Anati, he's a, a rapper. He raps in vernacular and English, just released a new album. It's number one on iTunes, Apple Music at the moment, um, the Africa Store. So check it out. Um, certainly if you like rap and hip hop, um, I think you're going to enjoy it. Well, David, thank you very much. I mean, this time flew by, I don't think we even scratched the surface of what's happened in, in your business and the music industry in the last 21 years. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Well, everybody, you've been listening to um, Radio, which is a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. Um, I'm your host, Ross Drakes, and we are currently missing our other host, Rich Mulholland. Um, I hope he's at least having a good day because he's not sitting here recording a podcast with us. Um, thank you very much to the sponsors who make EO possible, Bidvest McCarthy, Bidvest Car Hire, Execke, and 10XE. You guys are flipping awesome. And if you are an entrepreneur or an inspiring entrepreneur and want to find out more, go to theeonetwork.org. And um, just a little request from our side, if you've enjoyed this, please just pass on the episode to a friend or even better, if you could rate us in whatever store it is that you are um, listening, because as David says, if we're not in the, the top, top page of the thing, nobody's ever going to find us. So thank you very much and we'll catch you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.